Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. And let's open our Bibles this morning to our text, which is, which is Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. This is going to be the starting place, Genesis 14, 18. And I need to speak for several minutes before we read, before I read the text. And also, uh, I will just give you a warning ahead of time that our our outline is really going to be in play more at the right at the end, toward the end of the sermon. So it's going to take us a while to get to the the, the main principles that we're going to flesh out this morning. But we uh, will get there at the end of the the time this morning. I want to remind you, if you didn't come prepared to stay and eat with us, we would encourage you to do that at the Family Life Center. I think it's lasagna. I'm really, is that right? Uh, So it's lasagna that people have cooked. Um, It was bought. They heated it up. I'm looking at Sherry because I really don't know how they do this. But the bottom line is we're using it as a way to, to raise funds to send our children to camp this summer. And Brad didn't really brag on uh, what he's doing. I know he's humble, but what we're trying to do is raise money to help offset the cost of children to go. So whatever you give, 100% of that would go. So give generously and stay if you can and just fellowship and get to know people and be a part of what's happening in in the life of the family at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. And so I want to encourage you this morning to understand where we are as a church family. We've been learning about what the Bible teaches about worshiping God. And the main thing that we have learned is that worship is not an event. Worship is a lifestyle. And if we're going to be disciples, which means fully devoted followers of Christ, that's our goal, to be disciples, then we can't compartmentalize our life and say when we stop what we're doing at church, then we cease to be disciples. We have to learn how to worship in every aspect of our life. And so worship continues beyond the parking lot. And that's what we've been studying. That's what we've been learning that God's Word teaches us. We've been learning to live a lifestyle that follows what's called the principle of stewardship. And that principle states that God as the Creator actually owns everything. And that every part of our life, whether it's our own personal lives, our, ch- our children, our families, our marriage, our time, our work, our wealth, all of that is actually God's. And we are not to consider ourselves as owners, but rather stewards, which is a word that means managers. The Bible teaches that the principle of stewardship is to be seen in every part of life, that we are stewards for God's glory. And in no part of our life is that more challenging than in the area of giving money. And that's the topic we want to discuss this morning. I was I was shocked this week as I was preparing to be reminded of something I already knew. But that is that Jesus spoke on money one out of every three times he taught. That's hard to believe. We don't really think of that, but if somebody has actually sat down and counted how many lessons Christ taught and found out that a third of his lessons were specifically about dealing with money. And the question then becomes, why did Jesus spend so much time talking about money? And by the way, that emboldens me not to be ashamed of talking about money and giving. If our Lord talked about it a third of his lessons, then that tells me... That we're cleared hot to talk about it. 
And so what the answer to the question is, why did Jesus do that? Is this he understood the heart of human beings and he understood the power of money and how it affects our relationship with God. And it's an insidious thing that sneaks into our life and it steals away our heart for God. Matthew 6 is a a sermon that Jesus preached that's called the greatest sermon of all time. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, Jesus said. And most Christians would say, I'm not serving wealth. But we have to be careful because oftentimes what uh, we don't understand is that we do rely on what wealth brings too much. And that is a false God. When we become dependent on money to do what only God should be able to do, then we're practicing idolatry. The main ways that we depend too much on money is depending too much on money to do something that we really should be depending on God for is either in spending and what spending gives us or in saving, and what saving gives us, which is essentially security. And both of those things are, are good until you get to a point where you cross the line into depending on that, and then it becomes idolatry. And in that same sermon in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven for where your treasure is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to just be frank with you. As your pastor, my concern, I know that people always say pastors want money for the church. And pastors are concerned about the needs of the church. And I am concerned about the needs of the church. And listen to what the needs, the needs of the church are your heart. My, my concern is for your heart. God's going to take care of his business. It may or may not be with Ridgecrest. That's up, to, that's up to us and our willingness to follow him. But God has no needs. Our need is our heart. And as your pastor, my, my heart is for you to have a heart that says, I want to glorify God without any other competition for God in my heart. So I'm most concerned that you have a spiritual need. Don't ever say, I'll give if there's a need. There is a need. It's your heart. Because what happens is when you give, it crushes the idol of money in your heart. And it makes God the very first thing in your life. And so, again, my prayer today is, I have a prayer for you today. It's got three parts to it. The first part is that you would say, I'm making a commitment to the principle of stewardship. I'm going to give up everything I own and just say, God, today, in this, this day in February the 23rd or whatever day it is, I'm giving you my life in such a way that I'm going to commit to live by the principle of stewardship, which means my money is no longer mine. It's your money, God, and I'm going to manage it for you. And I'm praying today that you'll say, God, I'm going to turn to your word, and whatever your word says, that's how I'm going to live. I'm going to live under the authority of your scripture because it's the word of God. And I want to have every part of my life be a way to worship, especially my giving, that I'll worship through giving. 
I'm going to tell you that if you start talking to Christians, you're going to find out a lot of Christians. I'm talking about born-again evangelical Christians that love Jesus. They'll tell you, I don't believe in tithing. And they'll tell you that, um, you know, they're, they're not people that practice tithing. And I want to define some terms here because if you're not thinking what I'm thinking, then we can be not communicating. So look, if you have a handout, I wrote the definitions that are what we're talking about here on the top of principle number one. Offerings, we talked about last week, are money and monetary resources given over and above the tithe for special occasions. So offerings are different from tithes. Uh, Offering is money and monetary resources given over and above the tithe for special occasions. We are giving an offering today to raise funds for the children to go to camp. That's, That's above and beyond what our budget has set up for the children's program. That's an offering. That's different than a tithe. The tithe is a Hebrew word for tenth. The word tithe means tenth in Hebrew. And it is a gift of money to the church for day-to-day ministry needs. Money given to the church for day-to-day ministry needs. When I say the word tithe, I mean a tenth of the income that you receive from whatever sources of income you have. Not just to give a gift, not just to give a portion, but I mean a tenth. So I'm using the word tithe to mean 10%. And I remember when I was a young deacon, I was serving in a church, and I had an older deacon in my life that I was spending time with, and I really respected him, and I, I, I uh, had a lot of, um, I hung on his words, and I had a lot of respect for him, and I still do. We were talking about tithing one day. He said, uh, well, I, he said this, he said, I don't believe in the tithe. And he said, I don't tithe. And so I was pretty shocked because I grew up in a church that taught tithing. After I was saved, I was saved at 13. And so I said to this, I assumed that he had been tithing. And I said, what do you mean you don't believe in the tithe? And he said this, the tithe is from the old covenant. It's from the law of Moses. And I'm not under the law. I'm free in Christ. I'm in the new covenant. And we are in the new covenant today. He said, hey, I'm free in Christ. I'm not under the law, and the tithe is from the law, so I don't have to give a tithe, and I don't tithe. I grace give. He said, I'm a grace giver. Well, that totally confused me, and it made me ask the question, is the tithe still valid today? Is Is the tithe still relevant today? And I began to do search the scriptures and talk to people and and do my research. And, of course, uh, that continued when I went to seminary. And the results of a great deal of research and preparation come to you in the next few minutes in the form of this sermon. So for a few minutes, I'm going to answer the question, is the tithe still valid today? And I'm going to present to you three principles of giving a tithe to worship God. And the text is Genesis 14, which I need to explain what's happening here. This is, by the way, the first time in Scripture we see the word tithe. Here's the setting for our text. 
The man named Abraham that's so famous in the Bible at this point is still called Abram. Later on, God changes his name to Abraham, but Abram and Abraham are the same person. And if I say the word Abraham, please don't, that's by just my mistake, but Abram was the main character in this story, or is, and he had a nephew named Lot, and Lot had been in his family, Lot and Lot's family had been near an attack on the city of Sodom where near where Lot lived, and it was a war, and Lot was taken prisoner of war. So now Abram hears that his nephew Lot has been taken prisoner of war along with Lot's family and all of the wealth that Lot had, which was substantial. And so Abram gets together all of his men, and, and he had a huge ranch, And so he had over 300 men working for him, and he basically built a little makeshift army and says, boys, we're going after on a rescue mission to rescue Lot and his family. And off they go, chasing down uh, this army out there in the middle of of northern Israel, way up in the very top of, of Israel today. And they caught up to Lot and his family and the, and the enemy forces, and Abram's army attacked in a, in, a, in a night attack and successfully defeated this army and rescued Lot and, all of the, and, and re, retrieved all of the possessions that Lot and his family had lost. Now, as they went back home, they passed through what would one day become the city of Jerusalem. At that point, there was no Jerusalem. It's many hundreds of years before Jerusalem is built. But it's a a place called Salem. And as Abram passes through this valley that would one day become the valley called the Kidron Valley outside the walls of Jerusalem, two kings come out to meet him and speak with him. And that's where we're going to pick up in our text. In verse 18, it says, Now Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God most high. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear, you would say, I have made Abram rich. Well, who was this Melchizedek? He was an early priest of God who was a believer interceding for the people on behalf of Yahweh. He came out and blessed Abram in the name of God. And he said to Abram, effectively, do you realize, Abram, that this victory has been given to you by the Creator who's the possessor of all things? In other words, he said, do you believe the principle of stewardship? And he is known as the king of Salem, which means peace. 
He was the king of peace. The name Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is the king of peace and righteousness. And his representation is symbolic of people that are living for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. And then you have, on the other hand, this king of Sodom. And if you know anything, you've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom was famous or infamous for its wickedness. Even at this point, they were just a city of sin. And the king of Sodom, he represented this idea that we can find meaning in life by pursuing satisfaction in the things of this world. So these kings essentially represent the two different philosophies of how to find purpose in life. You have a, a man here, Melchizedek, who's saying, if you'll live for the glory of God and for the honor of God, then you'll find peace and righteousness will give you peace in your life. And then on the other hand, you have this man that says that the secret to being happy in life is pursuing your pleasures and your desires with all passion. And effectively, Abraham or Abram had to make a choice. And the choice was which king would he honor? And he said to the king of Sodom, I will not receive your wealth because I don't want you to ever say that you were the one that made me wealthy. And by doing that, he was making a statement about where he wanted to place his honor and his worship in life. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting person, and there's a lot of debate in the Bible about him. Some scholars actually believe it was Christ in pre-incarnate form. And there's not much um, consensus on whether that's the case or not, but what's really interesting about Melchizedek is that when David lived, he wrote a psalm about Melchizedek, and it's Psalm 110. In Psalm 110... Verse 4, David, which, and by the way, Psalm 110 that David wrote was a messianic psalm. In other words, it was a prophecy of what the Messiah would be like when he did come. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, and it's speaking of the coming Messiah. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And, what, and here's where it really gets interesting. In the New Testament, there's a book called Hebrews. It was written... Um, as a sermon, but in that book of Hebrews, in chapter 6, the writer of that book of Hebrews, who we're not sure exactly who that is, but he begins to talk about how Jesus is our high priest today, that Jesus is the better high priest than the old covenant high priest that was Levi, the Levites. And that Jesus, as our high priest, would actually give us a hope that was a sure hope of salvation for what he did and that he mediated a covenant, a new covenant with God where he went into the presence of God, basically just like entering into the Holy of Holies we spoke about last week and sacrificed himself as our high priest, as a mediator between us and a holy God. This is what Hebrews 6.19 says. This hope we have of salvation as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one, was, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies as a forerunner for us. 
having become our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, what all this means is that Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus and what Jesus would do for us. And Abram knew that. Abram knew that he was a priest that was representing who eventually would come. These ancient Hebrews understood that they needed a redeemer. That's why Job was able to say, I know that my redeemer will live one day and walk upon the earth. And Abram was tithing to him as a way to pay honor to the God of his salvation to say, I will tithe looking forward to the point where Messiah comes to earth to redeem his people. So Melchizedek pointed forward to Christ, and we see that in that he gave bread and wine, which was a reminder of us of the death of the Lord at Calvary. And this is amazing because all of this is taking place somewhere within proximity of where the cross is actually going to be. But it's going to be another 2,000 years. There is no Jerusalem. And the death of Christ on the cross is literally going to take place within sight of where this confrontation is happening. And so Abram comes and he gets to this place where he realizes, I need a Savior. I need someone who will come and die for me in my place and redeem me from my sin. And it, I know the Lord will provide that, Jehovah Jireh. And because of that, I tithe in faith, looking to the God of my salvation. And that's why he turned to Melchizedek and gave him a tenth of all of the goods and refused this invitation of the king of Sodom, saying, I will not be indebted to you. I will not put myself into a place where one day you'll say, you owe me. That's the voice of Satan. And what he said is, I'm going to be obligated to worship the God of my salvation. And I believe that Melchizedek was saying, if you take this salvation and you take on the responsibility incumbent upon worshiping the God of your salvation. We don't just get saved and then walk away from it and do whatever we want. There are obligations after our salvation to worship. And the point of this passage is this. Faith in Christ looks beyond the riches of this world to the wealth of worshiping God. And by his actions, what Abraham was doing was saying, my victory, not only in this victory in retrieving Lot, but my victory in life is because of my coming Redeemer. And I want to tithe and worship him through the tithe. It was a beautiful picture of worship. And it brings us to the first principle on the handout. The principle of giving a tithe to God in worship is giving it is pre-law. The tithe is not part of the law. It is pre-law. By law, I mean the, the mosaic, the, the law that Moses made at Mount Sinai 500 years after this. People oftentimes will bring up you know, the, the fact that the tithe is not in the New Testament as, as a, a point that they don't have to tithe. There's only one mention of the word tithe in the New Testament, and it's Matthew's, in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees prided themselves on being saved because they tithed and did all these other things. They, they were people that were 
saying, I am good enough to not need a Savior. In my own goodness, I'm good enough to get into heaven. And Jesus confronted them with that. And the way he did that was they were, they were tithing on the very smallest spices in their kitchens. Whenever they ate, I mean, just the tiniest what's called mint, dill, and cumin. And, and so Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these first things you should have done without neglecting, excuse me, but these things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, you should tithe on all the little amounts of spices, but don't neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So that's the only mention of the word tithe in the entire New Testament. And some people say that's Jesus saying you should be tithing, but only because it was before the cross and it was the old covenant still. The new covenant was not in effect yet. And so a lot of Christians will say this is a pre-new covenant. It's still the old covenant. The new covenant does not go into effect until the death of Christ. And Jesus said this, obviously, before he died. So that's not proof that we need to tithe. And so, again, what I'm contending is the tithe is pre-law. It existed 500 years before Moses was ever born. And the fact is, we know the New Testament church began immediately to practice the giving of the tithe immediately after the church was established. And really what I, I want to encourage people to understand is there's nothing wrong with grace giving as long as what you mean by grace giving is I want to give more than just a tithe. You know, I find it very difficult to believe. This is what I find it very difficult to believe that the very poorest Jews were required to give 10% of their income. And yet in the new covenant, with this grace giving concept that there's no minimum standard for everybody to reach that. And the problem with thinking that there somehow that we don't have to tithe in grace giving is this tithing is not a punishment, folks. It's not like to say I don't have to tithe, that I can give less than a tithe. It is to argue that almost like a tithe is somehow taking away our joy or taking away the ability of, in some sort of restriction on us. The tithe is not a punishment. It is a way to worship. And I just have to believe in the new covenant, even if you said or a person argued for grace giving, my, my contention would be you have to give more in grace giving than 10%. How can you possibly be on this side of the cross and give less than what people gave before the cross in the old covenant, looking forward to it? And so, I, again, I, my point that I'm trying to make is I want to find grace givers that say I want to give more than 10% because I see the value of my salvation. I see what Christ has done for me. But I'm just going to be honest with you. The, the people I personally have encountered that didn't believe in tithe in the New Covenant, they wanted to, to be able to give less than 10%. And what I'm stating is, according to the Word of God, the second principle of giving says the tithe is still a valid standard of giving to the church. 
And the question I want to answer to try to help you flesh this out and, and make sense of it is why would we need a standard? Why would we need a minimum standard? And the answer is because we, def- we're, because we default to believing that we don't have to give as much because we want to place more emphasis on what money can do in our own life, either through spending or saving. And I'm going to, I'm going to bear this out in some statistics. Let me get, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you some statistics that ought to trouble you this morning. From recent research, like within the last five years, on the American Evangelical Church, this is churches of born-again Christians in America, the richest country on earth, the average amount that's given to the church by evangelical born-again Christians is 2.5% of their income. The average that's given to charity by non-believers is 1.8%. We, as a church, give 2.5% to the church, and unbelievers give 1.8%. There's less than 1% difference between us and unsaved people as a whole across America. 93% of all born-again Christians do not give 10% of their income to the church. 93%, which means only 7%, roughly only 7% of all Christians do give 10% of their income to the church. Think about how much money would be available to churches if that was reversed and 93% of Christians gave 10% of their income. I'll tell you what we wouldn't be doing. We wouldn't be taking up money for kids to go to camp. 30%. This is troubling. 30% of all people who call themselves Christians do not give one penny in a year to the church. And this is the one that I found amazing and most amazing. Researchers have noted there's often a a wide difference between what people say they give and what they actually give. Somebody who was a researcher took the time to do research on only people in the, um, across evangelical churches that, that said, I am a tither, I give 10%. And these researchers looked at what they actually gave, and they found out of just people who claimed to be tithers, and all this was, I'm sure, done anonymously, researchers found of all who claimed to give a tithe, only 25% of that group actually did give a tithe. And three out of four of that group did not even give 5%. And I don't know if they're lying or if they're fooling themselves, but they were certainly not aware of their giving. That answers the question, why do we need a minimum standard? Because we default to giving less than we want to give because our default, unless we are intentional, unless we are worshiping, unless we are really seeking the Lord, we will default to give less because we, we see the power of money and what it brings when we spend it and we see the power of money and what it brings when we have it in our savings. And it, to have a 10% minimum standard is an accountability that we need. 
And it guides our giving today. But let me just tell you, the Bible sets forth the principle that it's not the maximum we're supposed to give. Ten percent is a valid standard, but it's really the floor and it's not the ceiling. And, that's the, that's, and here's, here's what our prayer ought to be today. Our prayer today ought to be, God, I pray that you would let me have the ability to give you t- more than 10% of my income. I mean, would you even pray that prayer today? That we, you would say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to just give you 10%. I want to give more than that. And you say, well, that's impossible. And I'm going to argue... That if, you, if it begins today with a prayer in your heart, a prayer that says, God, I want to, I really want to. And it begins today with an honesty about your attitude. Because here's, here's what you really need to understand as we close, is your attitude in giving just reflects the depth of gratitude you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. Attitude reflects gratitude. What I'm saying is, when you begin to think just a little bit, week to week, maybe just a few times a month about your salvation like Abram did, and the value of your salvation relative to eternity, and the fact that you had no other means by which you could be reconciled to a holy God, but when you think just a little bit about that, you, you know what you think? You think, I'm, I'm feeling kind of guilty, I have to give. You think a little bit more about it, maybe once every couple of weeks, you begin to think a little bit more about who Christ is and what he's done for you, then you you begin to think, I should give. But if you begin to see daily as you walk with God and you worship him in every aspect of your life, and you see the value of who God is to you in in your life compared to eternity, and how God has rescued us out of the flames of hell in reality... And you appreciate the cost that it came to the Lord Jesus at his own life for you on the cross. And you're going to say, I want to give. So I want to ask you today, you know, what is your attitude relative to giving? And what is your attitude relative to the word of God? I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me. And this is only between you and God. We would never look at your giving here at this church. I'm never going to look at your giving. I'm never going to. And I don't want to know who gives. But if you're a believer here today, if you're a follower of Christ here today, and you're not tithing, I want to ask you to make a commitment today, and that commitment to be, God, I I want to be a tither. I see your will for my life in your word. The word of God teaches me today, God, that you have spoken to me that I am to worship you through giving 10% of my income to you. And I want to do that because I see what the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace has delivered into my life. And Lord, I I need your help to do that because I'm not there. So just talk to Him. He knows your situation and He knows your heart. The question I'm asking you is, will you live by the principle of stewardship? And are you a Christ follower on Sundays? Are you a Christ follower every day of the week? Are you under the Word of God? If you're here and you're a Christian today, you need to do business with the Lord because He's speaking to your heart. And if you've got an idol in your life of money and wealth, God wants to take that away from you this morning. You've got to let go of it and give that idol back to God this morning.
I'm not concerned today about the needs of this church. I'm concerned today about the needs of the people of this church. It is your heart. My, as your pastor, I implore you to submit to the leadership of God in your life through the Word of God. You're here today and you're a, a person that would say, I'm thinking I'm pretty good on my own. But what I'm hearing you say today is that I need a Savior. That means today you're not a Christian. To be a Christian is to have placed all of your trust in Jesus and to have that spiritual rebirth that comes once in life. You come in here today thinking you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person. You need a Savior. The Bible says that none of us are good enough to go to heaven. So today what you need to do is pray a simple but, but eternal changing prayer to receive Christ. And I'll lead you through it. Even where you're sitting, just say and call out in, the, in your heart and mean it sincerely. Say, dear God, I am a sinner. I see my life and I know it's not what you want it to be. So, God, I see that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I call out to you to save me today. I make Jesus the Lord of my life. I promise to follow Him. I trust in what He did for me at Calvary. I want to become a believer today and have my sins forgiven. Save me, Lord Jesus. That's the grace of God in your life. You need to tell me about that if you make that decision. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. That's not talking about getting rich materially. That's talking about getting rich with eternal life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul, Jesus said. When the Lord speaks to your heart, don't harden your heart against him this morning. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com Have a great day and God bless.